Good morning, church. My name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here, and I'm grateful to have you guys here this morning. Those of you joining us online, we're thankful that you're here as well. And if you're new to Freedom, or if you've been around Freedom for a while, you know that the way that we typically go through our sermons on Sunday morning is we will teach through a book of the Bible, or in this case, we'll teach through a character of the Bible, because I figured after spending 50-some-odd weeks in Mark, we didn't want to tackle Genesis, which has 50 chapters. And so uh, that might take a minute. And so we're going to just focus in on one character in the book of Genesis, a man named Joseph, whose story occurs at the very end of the book. He's one of the, he is the last story in the book of Genesis. Genesis 37 through 50 covers his story. And we're going to be diving into his story over the next several weeks and getting a picture of who Joseph is and how his, how his story applies to our life. Because as Sharon said, Joseph is really one of the most beloved characters in the Bible. I mean, he's, many of us are familiar with his coat of many colors, and we're familiar with, with the part of his story of slavery and, and, and moving from the prison to the penthouse and the palace of Pharaoh. And we, we're kind of familiar with that story. But what's fascinating about his story and inspirational about his story is that he truly does live his dream. But ironically, Joseph's story sounds like an episode of Dateline. Like every time I, I think about Joseph's story, I almost picture and, and hear Lester Holt going betrayal, murder, sibling rivalry despair, all turning on a moment's notice and a turn of events that leads to reunion and restoration. You're never going to hear Joseph's story the same, are you? But that's, what, that's the way it reads, and you're like, man, this is crazy. What an incredible, crazy story that Joseph has. And part of that dramatic nature of Joseph's story and our addiction as a culture to heroic characters makes Joseph's story very difficult to interpret. Because here's, here's the way we often treat characters in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. We read those stories and we think, okay, here was a man who lived a long, long time ago. He did some good things and he did some bad things, but his life was full of problems. And somehow... Through God's help, he overcame his problems. And so therefore, because he is put in the pages of the Bible, I am to mimic and model my life after his life so that I too can overcome my problems. And that's often the way we look at characters in the Bible, isn't it? And that's the challenge because our tendency is to isolate these stories in Scripture. And I know some of you are going, well, Eric, aren't that, isn't that what you're doing by isolating Joseph's story and just teaching through it? No, what I want us to do is I want us to see over the next several weeks this bigger picture of Joseph's story. Because the, what happens if we just isolate these men and these women in the Bible and read their stories as if it were one of Aesop's fables with this great moral at the end, what ends up happening is we not only do we misinterpret the passage, we actually do injustice to the narrative in 
general, in, 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 in that moment, but also we do injustice to the Bible as a result of looking at it as if it were one of Aesop's fables. You see, Joseph's story, like every single story in the Bible, every story points to a bigger picture of God's redemptive plan. Every single story in Scripture, no matter which one you look at, is pointing to this greater redemptive story, this greater narrative that God has put in place that should cause us to recognize the magnificence and the glory of our great God. Now, I'm not saying that we can't glean lessons from Joseph's life. That's not what I'm saying at all. So don't hear me say, well, there's no principles in Joseph's life. No, in fact, there are many principles in Joseph's life that teach us and show us ways that we can live and apply those things to our life. In fact, over the next several weeks, we're going to see some incredible principles, the way Joseph lived his life that will, that will teach us and show us how, to, how do we deal with a dysfunctional family? How do we uh, stay faithful to God in the midst of terrible, difficult circumstances? How, how do we navigate life's challenges and, and how do we remain pure in the face of temptation? I mean, we'll see all of these things in Joseph's story, but here's what I am saying. I am saying that if we look at, at, at stories in the Bible, if we take characters from the Old Testament and only focus on what principles we can learn from their lives without connecting them to God's greater story, we miss the point of why they're in the Bible in the first place. And in addition to that, we actually play into a worldview and a perspective that I believe is plaguing the church and our culture as a whole. And here's what that worldview is. It is a worldview that reduces the Bible to nothing more than a guide to morality. And I believe that worldview of reducing the Bible to nothing more than a guide to morality is plaguing many in the church and our culture as a whole. For those of you who were alive in the 80s, you probably remember this, this political movement called the what? Moral majority. Do you all remember that? That is the essence of this worldview. Thinking that if we could just help people understand morality, then our world will be a better place. The problem is, rules don't change us. Rules don't transform us. And if we view the Bible as nothing more than a list of rules, we're going to get in trouble. But the reality is we like rules, don't we? I, I, I like someone to tell me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. It's just easier, right? It's less messy. I don't have to do any self-examination. If you just tell me what to do and I go do it, or tell me not what not to do and I just go do it, I don't have to examine my own heart. I don't have to examine my own life. I just go and do the rules. I just go and follow the rules. And we, I think there's something wired within us that we like those black and white rules as, a, as humanity. We like to know, here's what I need to do, here's what I don't need to do. Do this, don't do that. It's clean, it's simple, but here's the problem with rules. Rules, when, when we reduce the Bible to nothing but a list of rules, it leads us as Christians to come across as judgmental, as legalistic, and hypocritical. Why? 
because none of us can follow the rules. None of us can perfectly follow the rules. And if all we're putting out there is here's the rules you should follow, then what, that, that's legalistic. It comes across as legalism. It comes across as judgmental because other people aren't following the rules. But it's easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Think about it. Our church is full of sinners. Our kids are rebellious and disobedient. Our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. So we begin to think, well, maybe I just need to give them more rules. I just need to teach more morality, and then maybe that'll turn things around. I need to become a better Christian, so what I need in order to do that is more rules. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the gospel does not have its opportunity to work in our lives. The redemption that God has placed in, within the gospel, within Jesus Christ, does not have the ability to work its way into our lives if all we're doing is following rules. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to pray, we don't need to avoid sin, we don't need to do good. No, those things are good, but those things in and of themselves are not the point. What we need is not more rules, we need more Jesus. What we need is not more, more morality, what we need is more redemption. Because the reality is none of us can live up to the rules. That's why we need more of the gospel. That's why we need more of Jesus. So throughout this series, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Joseph's life through the lens of God's redemptive plan. We're going to take a look at Joseph's life through this great narrative of redemption. And how God used Joseph to keep his promises, to create this great nation, and through that great nation to bring about a great Savior. We're going to read and study and learn Joseph's life in light of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. Y'all ready to dive into that? Good, because that's what we're going to do. But here, here's, the, here's, what I, here's what I want us to know. In order to do that... We need to remember, we need to remember that this entire book, this Bible, is 66 books, individual letters telling one unified story. And Jesus is the key to understanding the entire Bible. Jesus is the key to understanding Scripture. Jesus is the key to understanding the, how this book is put together. These 66 books that we call the Bible are all pointing to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. The Gospels reveal who Jesus is. The epistles point us back and remind us about Jesus and how we live for him as a disciple. And the book of Revelation tells us, look, we need to be looking forward to his return. Every single aspect of the Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Bible's not this disjointed collection of unrelated stories. And in order for us to be familiar with the Bible, we have to understand the whole in order to interpret the parts. We have to understand this whole redemptive plan in order for us to dive in and do a, do a, a, a deep dive into Joseph's life. We need to also look to the New Testament to get our bearings and understanding for the Old Testament. 
So how did Jesus view the Old Testament? Well, he tells us. He tells us in John chapter 5, verse 46. And Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said to them, For, you, for if you believed Moses, then you would believe me. For Moses wrote of me. Interesting, isn't it? Think about what Jesus just said. He said, if you believed Moses, and these were the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to of Israel. And he goes, guys, listen, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. Now, what did Moses write? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. That's what Moses wrote. The New Testament is where we begin with Jesus' birth. So think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying that if you believe what, what Moses wrote in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you believe that, then you will believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote of me. So Jesus is saying the first five books of the Bible are about him. The book of Genesis is about him. The book of Exodus is about him. The book of Leviticus is about him. The book of Numbers is about him. The book of Deuteronomy is about Jesus. That's what he's saying. So we have to understand the redemptive story of Jesus in, under, in order to understand the story of Joseph. But Jesus wasn't the only one that noticed that. He wasn't the only one that recognized that. In fact, P, uh, uh, Philip also recognized this thread. Philip, as he was, as soon when he first began to follow Jesus, he goes to this his friend Nathaniel in John chapter one, and he goes to Nathaniel and he says this. Philip found Nathaniel and he said to them, "We have found him. We have found who? We have found the one that Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." So what is Philip saying? He's saying, listen, Nathaniel, we have been looking for the Messiah. And how did we know about the Messiah? From the law of Moses and what the prophets wrote about. And he goes, we have found him and his name is Jesus and he's from Nazareth. But that's not the only time Philip sees that. In the book of Acts, Philip is, is in, interacting with a, with a eunuch from Ethiopia. And he's on the road and this eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip overhears what he's reading, and he begins a conversation with him. And the eunuch says to him, says to Philip, he says, About whom, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? So he's saying, who is he talking about? Who is Isaiah talking about in this story? About himself or about someone else? And look what Philip says to him. And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the scripture, what scripture? The scripture Isaiah. He started with Isaiah and he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip, in those two instances, with the, book, with the law of Moses, with the prophets, with the book of Isaiah, begins there and unpacks God's redemptive story for the eunuch and for Nathaniel in order for them to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And probably one of the greatest evidences of this 
is that after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which we celebrated last week, is, this, is the Lord's conversation with two, two of his disciples as they travel along the road to Emmaus. See, Jesus appears to these two disciples, and as they're traveling down the road, they're talking about the events that have just occurred. They're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about the cross. They're talking about everything that has gone on in Jerusalem and everything that has happened in Jerusalem. And, and what, is, what happens is Jesus appears to them, and in Luke 24, he says this. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Once again, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament in order to interpret what is happening in the New Testament. And he says, he says this, Why is it not that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And, and guess, look what he says. And beginning with what? Moses, which is what? The Pentateuch, the first five books. Where we're going to be over the next several weeks in Genesis. He says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what is happening here? We're seeing that in order for us to understand the Old Testament, we have to unlock it with the New Testament. In order for us to interpret what is happening in the Old Testament, we have to look to the New Testament. There, one book, yes, there's 66 individual books, but it's really one book telling one story. And that one story is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. And so my goal in this series is to help us unlock the Old Testament. Has anybody ever read the Old Testament? Like, I don't understand what on earth is going on. Anybody? Just me? Okay, we got two people. Thanks. Two honest folks in the room. That's awesome. I'm sure those of you that are at home were raising your hands because y'all are honest there. This group here is questionable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, we've all had that difficulty, right? We've all had that trouble of unlocking and understanding the Old Testament. You go and you read like, what on earth is going on? Like, what is all this talk about land and nations and, and seeds? And you're going, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. This doesn't make sense. Well, hopefully, as we go through the life of Joseph, it will begin to unlock some of that as we take what we do know. And what we do know is the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. What we do know is the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we don't know that, I've done a terrible job because we spent the last 50 plus weeks looking at the Gospel of Mark, unpacking who Jesus is, understanding his redemptive plan. So if, if we don't get that, then, then we're in trouble. But, but hopefully we do. We understand God's story of redemption for sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take what we do know, that, and we're going to use it as a grid to interpret all of Scripture, particularly the life of Joseph. So for the remainder of our time this morning, what I want to do is just give us a big overview picture of Joseph's life. So for those of you who are not familiar with his life, this is just the big picture, the big snapshots of major events that happened in his life. And then we're going to dig into them in more detail in the coming weeks. But we pick up in, in, in Joseph's story. It's found in Genesis 37 through 50. And, uh, and really, we, we know that Joseph was the son of Jacob. 
Joseph was the grandson of Isaac, and Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. Probably names you've all heard. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Joseph is related to all of them. He's part of this lineage of all the great patriarchs of Israel. His father, Jacob, was a highly influential and highly affluent man. In fact, Jacob's name is changed to Israel by God. God changes his name and says, you will no longer be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel. That is where we get the nation of Israel from, because Joseph and his other brothers, his 11 other brothers, form the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have these 12 tribes. This is where the nation of Israel comes from. Now, the thing about Joseph is Joseph was, his favor, was favored by his father. Joseph, out of all the brothers, Joseph was the favorite. Because Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife. Which is, this just tells you why you only need one wife. Because it creates a whole mess, as we're going to see in the next several weeks. But, uh, but what we do know is that Joseph was the favorite. Jacob favored him. So what Jacob does is he gives him this coat of many colors. And he makes him stand out to his brothers. Now his brothers didn't like it. They become jealous. They get angry. Well, then at 17, Joseph has this dream, this vision from God that, that literally he, he's given to, given this vision by God. And Joseph's dream had his family members bowing down to him in reverence and in awe. Now, I don't know about you, but if my family member said, hey, I had a dream and that dream is for you to submit to me. Oh, really? Well, that's the way Joseph's brothers interpret it. Oh, really? And they got ticked off. They got mad. They were already jealous. Now they're ticked. That's not a good combination. So what happens is his brothers go out and they're tending to the, to the herd. And Jacob sends Joseph to take supplies to him to check on him. Well, they see him coming because they see him walking down through the desert with this coat of many colors. And they conspire to kill him. So when he gets there, when Joseph arrives at his brothers, they take him and they throw him in a cistern, in a pit. And their plan was to murder him because they were mad at him because he's not going to tell them he's, they, that they're going to bow down to him. So that's their plan. We're going to murder our brother. Well, they decide not to murder him because of the influence of another brother. And he says, listen, that would not be a good idea. And so this was Judah that comes up with this plan. Let's not murder him. Judah goes away for whatever reason. While Judah is gone, the other brothers see a caravan carrying slaves to Egypt. So what they decide, instead of murder, that way the blood, his blood's not on our hands, let's make a profit off of this. And so they decide to sell him into slavery. So at least they didn't kill him, but they sold him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery, and then these brothers take his coat of many colors and dip it in ram's blood. Yeah, I mean, this is great family, right? Like, you think you got family problems. They dip his coat into ram's blood, take it back to his dad. Now, this was before DNA, so he couldn't test it. Say, wait a second, this is an animal. This isn't my son. They take it to his dad and say, look, we found his coat of many colors. Clearly, a wild animal has taken Joseph and killed him. 
These folks have some serious family issues going on, folks. I'm telling you. Well, can you imagine just for a moment being Joseph in this instance? Like, think about this. God has given you a dream. You know for a fact that it's from God. And instead of that dream coming to fruition, you're thrown in a cistern by your brothers and then sold into slavery. Like, no doubt, Joseph's going, God, what are you doing? How, how on earth is this going to accomplish the dream that you've given? God, why is this happening? Have you ever asked God that? Have you ever had that moments where you think, God, I know that this is what your will is. I'm trying to follow you. I'm taking steps that you were leading me to. Why on earth are you allowing this stuff to happen to me? And some of you right now may be in a pit of, that wasn't your own making. And you're going, God, why? Why? And I have no doubt that Joseph is doing the exact same thing. God, why? Why is this happening? Well, part of the reason I believe this is happening is God is teaching Joseph dependence. God is teaching Joseph how to depend completely and totally upon God. And so he has stripped away everything that Joseph could have used to accomplish the dream by himself. Takes away his prestige of his family, takes away his, his money, takes away his name, takes away his freedom. And Joseph learns dependence. He learns how to depend upon God. God is moving Joseph from self-reliance to God-reliance. But here's the reality. I think many of us don't truly understand how to grow spiritually. I think oftentimes we don't really understand how to grow spiritually. And here's what I mean. We understand how to grow humanly from a human perspective, right? I mean, just think about your kids. What do you do? Your kids move from dependence to what? Independence. They move from dependence to independence. That's the goal, right? We want our kids to, to no longer depend upon us. Like at some point in their 30s, they need to move out. But, but, but that's what, I mean, when you have a baby, what happens? I mean, that baby is completely and totally dependent upon you as the parent. They can't feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't do anything by themselves. They need you as the parent to, to help them survive and live. So they are completely and totally dependent. But as they get older, they learn and grow in independence, right? That's the goal. We're raising, Nicole and I say this all the time, we, our goal from the very beginning was to raise adults, not children. That's part of the problem in our society. Too many people have raised children and not adults. And so they're still children into their 30s and 40s and 50s. But that's the goal. We're trying to teach them independence. Spiritually, it's just the opposite. Have you ever thought about that? Growing spiritually is the exact opposite of what we've taught our kids to do their entire lives. Spiritually speaking, when we grow spiritually, we move from, from, de from independence back to dependence. It's the difference between raising adults and what Jesus said in order for us to come to him and know the kingdom, 
we have to come with what kind of faith? Childlike faith. It's the exact opposite. So when we grow spiritually, it is the, it is the complete opposite. We move from independence to dependence. I believe that is what is happening with Joseph. God is moving him from, de- from independence to dependence. And we're going to see that over and over in this story. In fact, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever, whether man or woman, will remain in me. What is that? Dependence. You will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, that is about dependence. Let's move to the next major scene in Joseph's life. At age 17, he's sold into slavery, and he winds up at Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar was a was a was a leader in in Egypt. He was a very influential man. He Joseph served Potiphar for several years. In fact, he's even placed over his household affairs, and all that comes crashing down in Joseph's life when Potiphar's wife makes an indecent proposal. In that moment, Joseph has a decision to make. Am I going to be a man of integrity? Or am, I going to be a, or am I going to be a man that gives in to my passion? Am I going to follow God's law? Or am I going to create my own moral code? Thankfully, Joseph chooses correctly. He flees from Potiphar's wife, runs from her. But as a result, as a result of being a man of integrity, as a result of being a man that's going to honor God, what, what happens to him? He gets thrown in prison. Isn't that awesome? Follow God, honor God, and you get thrown in prison. That's what happens to Joseph. He gets thrown in prison. He goes, yay, God, I did the right thing. And now I'm in prison. Have you ever been punished for doing the right thing? And we can identify with this story. Have you ever been, been done, tried to honor God and it, and it sets you back? Well, Thankfully, God's not done with Joseph's story. 13 years later, now get this, 13 years after being put in prison, Joseph, 13 years of being a slave, being a prisoner, at the age of 30, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh has a dream and a vision that is from God. But Pharaoh can't interpret it, and none of his people can interpret it. But somebody remembers that Joseph can interpret dreams. So what do they do? They go bring Joseph before Pharaoh, from the prison to the most powerful person on earth. And Pharaoh asked Joseph, can you interpret my dream? Guess what Joseph says? No. He says no. Why? Because Joseph has learned dependence. That was a trick question. Joseph has learned dependence. He goes, no, I can't. But who can? God can. Dependence. Back to dependence. He goes, no, I can't. But God can't. And God does. And God shows him this dream represents seven years of feast followed by seven years of famine. And not only, not only does God give him the dream, he also reveals to him the solution. So what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh takes Joseph and moves him from the prison to the palace. He puts him as second in command of all of Egypt in order to implement the plan to save the Egyptians. That's what happens in Joseph's life from the prison to the palace. Now, get this, the story's not over. Nine years later, when Joseph is 39, his brothers come to Egypt for food. 
Because the entire world is starving. And guess who's the only nation that has food? Egypt. And so his brothers come to Egypt to get food. And guess what they do? They bow down to their brother who was second in command. They didn't know it was his brother at the time. But they bow down to him as second in command. Now think about this. Joseph's dream at 17 was realized 22 years later. He had to wait 22 years for the vision that God gave him to come to fruition. And it only came through fruition as a, as, as in a way that only God could make it happen. Only God could do it. And Joseph recognizes this. Why? Because he's learned dependence upon God. He recognizes this and he tells his brothers that he forgives them. And then in verse uh, 20 of chapter 50, he says to them, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You think? Pretty sure they did. You meant evil. You wanted to kill me. You sold me into slavery. You meant evil. But what does he say? But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. God has been working behind the scenes. His sovereignty, his plan has been working even though none of us could see it. And, he, and his plan was to bring about all of this so that many should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph recognizes this, and we're going to see this over the next several weeks. But there's a verse in Romans that, that really helps us bring this perspective from the New Testament. Romans eight twenty eight. Many of you have probably heard it. And we know, we know, we know, we can know this. We don't have to guess it. We don't have to think it. We don't have to wonder about it. It says, we know that those, for, that those who love God, for those who love God, what? All things work together for what? For good, for those who are called according to his purposes. See, Joseph, as we will see, will face trials of the body, of the soul, of the spirit. And yet, all of those trials will occur within the framework of God's purposes and God's plan. We don't like to hear that, do we? Like, I want my life as a follower of Christ to be problem-free, to be trial-free, to be temptation-free. But yet, through all of this, all of this is happening in Joseph's life through the framework of God's purposes. In Joseph, we see God accomplishing his purposes and his plan for the good. Who's good? God's good. It wasn't always for Joseph's good. Joseph had to go through some really, really dark times. Some really, really difficult times. Now who wants to sign up and be a follower of Jesus? Because the reality is, if we do, it doesn't mean that all things that happen to us are good. But it means that God works them for his good. It doesn't always necessarily mean our good. And that's an important distinction that we have to understand. Because I think a lot of people turn from the faith because they think, well, God's going to work all things for my good. No. He's going to work all things for his good, for his glory, for his honor, because he is sovereign. So Joseph shows us that God's sovereign plans do not fail. And 
throughout this chaotic nature of Joseph's life, it didn't mean that God had fallen off the throne. God was still in control. And these circumstances were not contrary to God's plan. They were part of it. The things Joseph goes through were not against God's plan. They were a part of God's plan. But throughout it all, nothing, nothing, nothing separates Joseph from the love of God. Not trials, not trouble, not temptation, not tribulation, not even prosperity. None of it, none of it separates Joseph from the love of God. God is with him in the pit. God is with him in the prison. And God is with him in the palace. God is with him throughout all of it. And Joseph's story, as we're going to see over the next several weeks, is a story of divine providence. It is a story of God's plan to redeem mankind through the work of Jesus Christ. You're going, wait a second. How how are we going to see that in Genesis when we know Jesus doesn't come until Matthew? Well, stick around because that's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover that God's plan of redemption is directly impacted by the life of Joseph. The life of Jesus in the New Testament is directly impacted by the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. We're going to see how in the next several weeks. But we're also going to see a story of a man who had character and had faith. A man who placed his trust in the living God, and because of that, was enabled. God enabled him to stand, withstand the pressures and disappointments of a life that was filled with both pressure and disappointment. And we're going to see these principles in his life. And what Joseph goes through, all these difficulties, all these things that Joseph faced, in the midst of all of it, he doesn't see how God's great plan, great plan is working. And the reality is that you and I don't always see how God's grand plan is working in our lives. So hopefully over the next several weeks, we'll be encouraged. Because many of us are going through some really, really difficult things right now. Could be health related, could be relationally, could be work related, could be spiritually, could be emotionally. Whatever that is, many of us are going through some very, very difficult times. And we don't see how they work and move within God's grand plan. And Joseph didn't either. But what Joseph did is he continued to love God. Continue to serve God. Continue to obey God. And hopefully we'll learn to do the same. Continue to love God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Continue to serve Him in the midst of the trials of life. And continue to obey Him regardless of what is thrown at us. I want to look at one final verse. Hebrews eleven twenty two. Speaking of Joseph, this is the hall of faith in the, in the book of Hebrews. And it says, by faith... Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That seems like a really, really odd verse, doesn't it? By faith, at the end of his life, Joseph gave mention of the exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at this later, in, but... What I want you to see here is that the writer of Hebrews is saying Joseph's life was a life of faith. He saw beyond the exodus. 
or he saw rather beyond the captivity in, in Egypt, and he saw the exodus. He saw the redemption. Now, he didn't experience it. Because he, even though he is second in command, he is still a slave to Pharaoh. He is a servant of Pharaoh. He is not a free man. And yet, he saw by faith that God would redeem his people. And that lands Joseph as one of the examples of faith. And we'll see in the coming weeks that the, that the good news of Joseph's story is not that he went from the pit to the palace. That's not the good news of Joseph's story. And the reason that's not the good news, and the reason we should be glad that's not the good news, because not every single one of us as followers of Christ will go from the pit to the palace. Some of us will stay in the pit. And so if that were the good news, then those of us who were in the pit were like, God, why am I not in the palace? The good news of Joseph's story is not that he goes from the pit to the palace. The good news of Joseph's story is a story of redemption. It is a story of a people, a nation, from whom God set apart to bring about a Savior. And through whom that Savior will be, will bring about the redemption of all who believe. That is the good news of Joseph's story. And that is what we're going to next we're going to focus on over the next few weeks. This story of faith and dependence. It's a story of character and integrity. It's a story of fruitfulness and faithfulness. But most importantly, what I want you to grasp this morning is most importantly, Joseph's story is a story of God's sovereign plan to make Israel into a great nation. And through that nation, bring about the Savior of all the world. And so my goal and my plan over the next several weeks is that God would increase our view of his sovereignty and his goodness and his greatness as we dive into the life of this incredible man named Joseph. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that even in an overview of Joseph's life, you teach us some incredible things about faith and about your sovereignty and your plan. And I pray that over the next several weeks, Lord, that we would we would see your grand plan of redemption. And that we would see that from the very beginning, God, you have set in place and set in motion this plan to redeem us. And you did it because you love us. And Father, I pray that we would be able to grasp that through Joseph's story. And yes, Lord, we know that we're going to see some principles to, to live by and apply to our lives, but what we ultimately want to see, God, is that you are in complete control. And Father, I know that this morning there are people here that are, that they're in the pit. They're in the difficult times and, and, and wrestling with some major life decisions and just struggling with with different things in their lives. And Father, I pray that today you would give them hope in Joseph's story. Not that he got out of the pit, but that he was a part of your grand redemptive plan. That his life was a part of your great narrative to redeem mankind. That his life, even though many bad things happened, you worked them for good, your good. Help us to see that, God, that you work 
for your good. And I think when we can understand it works for your good, then we can have hope and we can have faith. And we can be like Joseph and look beyond the exodus to the day of redemption. Help us to do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.